started I'd like to invite, invite you to come back to your seats what a fun day love this day um, yeah video was great my name is Jeremy I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Road Church we are really glad that you're here with us especially if you're a guest with us uh, we're honored that you would uh, choose to worship with us or you're in town visiting uh, we are honored that you're here. Um, because it's Mother's Day and it's a, it's a fun and exciting day, I just want to mention that this is a hard day for some people. Um, there's there's uh, brokenness that comes along with today. There's conflict. There's loss. There are um, men and, and women in the audience probably today that are longing to have children. And um, this was our story, uh, my wife and I, Nicole, for over 10 years. We had to wait to have kids. And every Mother's Day was, was great. It was, it was fun. It was, it was exciting. We, we truly were happy for those who were being celebrated on that day. However, it was hard. It was really, really hard. So um, for those of you who aren't suffering loss or it's not a difficult day, just keep in mind that there are people out there. Don't celebrate less. Just keep in mind that there are people out there who are struggling today and who could use some encouragement. And those of you who are hurting today, um, I, I pray that God's presence would be with you um, and that um, sometimes it's just hoping that today's over and that's okay. If you cannot wait to get past today till Monday, that's okay. That's an okay thing to want. And so I'm gonna stop, I'm gonna pray um, just especially for moms in the room who, um, who are struggling because I've been there. I've cried a lot of tears uh, with my wife on, on Mother's Day. So let me pray. Uh, Father, we, we thank you for today and everything Aaron, as Aaron said and been prayed for. We're so thankful for, for life and, and motherhood. But when, when something is celebrated on, on a specific day, there's oftentimes on the, on the flip side, there are people who are hurting. And I just want to stop and beg and ask and plead with your spirit to minister to those who are hurting. Whether it's conflict or loss involving mothers, involving children, um, in involving the longing to have children, I just pray that your spirit would, would um, connect and minister to those who are hurting. And I pray those who are hurting would not be silent, that, that they would find someone to process with, process the grief, and receive encouragement from other people. Um, so I, I, I pray for that now. I pray that your spirit would be felt amongst those who are hurting today. Amen. I'm going to read the scripture we're going to get into today. It's is, uh, Genesis. We're continuing on in our series of, on Genesis, and we're going to be in the back half of chapter 8 and, ver and uh, chapter 9. And so, as I read this, um, this is the second kind of, after the flood has happened, last week we covered pre-flood, um, Noah and the flood. This week we're covering post-flood, Noah and the flood. And what I want you to do as I read this, this is a story. This is a narrative. So I want you to put yourself in this story, just like you would any other story that you're reading, okay? Put yourself in this story as I read. Genesis 8, starting in verse 20, and we'll go through the end of uh, chapter 9. 
Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, but everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for you, lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of, the, of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. I said we were going through all verse 9, but we're going to stop, or chapter 9, we're going to stop right there. So today, um, we're continuing on in our series. We're walking through the book of Genesis. Walking through the book of Genesis. And today, the story brings us to this point where we're going to focus on the love of God. Okay, we're going to focus on God's love. And I think what you believe about the love of God and how the Bible defines that really determines um, really what your relationship with God is like. It gives a lot of insight to your relationship with God by how you define and think about what the love of God is and what it means. But here's the problem. When you say the love of God, there are often some different disagreements about what that actually is and what it actually means. What does that really mean? What does it mean that the God of the Bible is to be called a God of love? Because we can all get on board with God forgiving sin, God ministering to, the, to the, the hurting and the brokenhearted, healing the sick. We can all get on board and say, yes, that's an example of God's love. He is, he is love in those examples. But disagreements arise when we come to narratives like we just read. Like in chapter 6, uh, last week we read this, these three verses. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. 
So many of you, when I read this, that, that, that passage, that verse makes you feel uncomfortable. It makes you feel uncomfortable to hear God doing something like that. Maybe some of you are like, you know, I don't really want to talk about that, this, this mean God of the Old Testament. I want to go on to the New Testament where we see more of this loving God. I don't want to deal with these hard passages. I just want to talk about Jesus' forgiveness of sin and move on from there. Um, this, this stuff, this, this, this judgment and God doing this isn't really PC today. This isn't really popular, so let's just not talk about it. But in reality, if you, the, the New Testament, it, this is where uh, things like hell and the final judgment come up in Revelation. So the New Testament doesn't necessarily portray God any differently. God is the same from Genesis to Revelation. And so maybe some of you in here aren't even, don't even want to consider Christianity because of what we just read and what God does. And so we need to be able to, to understand when it says God is love, and then we see this, what is it talking about? What does it mean? And I think this flood, this narrative gives a great example of, of the justice God has towards sin. That he's, he's pouring out his wrath on sin and rebellion. When, and when the Bible talks about wrath and God's wrath, it's not talking about God uh, having a temper and flying off the handle and just this quick uh, judgment. It's not. God's wrath is measured. It's purposeful. It's, it's, it's a reaction. It's a reflective reaction towards, towards humans' disobedience. Wrath is not a part of God's character, okay? Being just is part of God's character, and being wrath is a tool God uses in response to humanity's sin and rebellion. But it is in the Bible, and we need to address it and wrestle with it, especially in light of talking about the love of God. Because the danger of dismissing it or just kind of not dealing with it is that you lose the perfect love of God if you lose the judgment of God. You lose the perfect love of God if you lose the justice of God, the judgment of God. They are both a part of his perfect nature and can't be separated. They're both a part of his nature. But I understand reconciling these two things together can be very, very difficult. And we need to get into the text and wrestle with it and under, try to understand how can God be both of these things and be not, be not quick to, to just dismiss the judgment part of God because we want to focus on the love. Because it cheapens the love and it minimizes the love if you don't deal with God's justice. And we dealt a lot with the, the kind of the wrath and judgment, those things that happened before the flood. So if you want to get more in depth into that, you can go back and listen to the sermon. We don't have time to cover that today. But I do want us to kind of catch us up to where we are in this point of Genesis because it, it does provide an important, important framework when we look at this narrative going back to the beginning of Genesis. Okay, so you got this perfect and holy God. It's perfect and holy. And at the beginning of this Bible, in the beginning of Genesis, he gives um, man and woman everything they need to experience joy and happiness and flourishing and blessing. They put them in a place called the Garden of Eden, which was a perfect place. There was perfect fellowship with God and things were great. He gives them a purpose. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and have dominion over it, which means basically he, he wanted a man and woman to extend God's 
uh, good and benevolent rule his kingdom and extend it through all the earth and be his image bearers to reflect him, to do good, to, to, to act how he would act. And he gave them one prohibition. He says, one thing you cannot do, it's don't eat from this tree. This one tree, just don't eat from it. And Adam and Eve ate from it. Sin comes into the world and it really messes things up. Everything's broken and sin comes into the world. And starting in Genesis 3 up to Genesis 9 where we're at today, sin has given birth to more sin. It's increasing. And God, we saw in in chapter 6 that God had had enough. You have Cain, who was, Cain and Abel, who are descendants of Adam. Cain kills his brother and doesn't seem sorry about it. And the great, great, great grandson of Cain, this guy named Lamech, he basically kills two guys just because they looked at him wrong. And this, the Bible's looking at this particular family tree, but there are many, many more people on the earth at this time. And God's just showing us a snapshot of what is happening on the earth. Violence, wickedness, rebellion. And there's another point in Genesis 6. God says this. We read a bit a minute ago. This is another part of Genesis 6. He says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now think about the last time you were grieved to your heart. That's heavy, heavy stuff. Grieved to your heart. You see, humans were the apex of God's creation. He actually breathed life into them. He formed them from dust. He, he, he intertwined himself with humanity in such a way that he gave humanity his image. Gave our, his very image he gave to humanity and says, be fruitful, multiply, giving you a purpose to, to be good and, and, and steward their creation well. And we would fail as humanity again and again and again. And we know God's sovereign, and we know that God knows the future, and we know that God knew that hum- humanity was going to break his heart over and over and over. He knew it. But yet he still chose to create Adam and Eve, humanity. He chose to create them to have relationship, to pour out his love and his blessing upon humanity. So even though God knew humans would break his heart, he chose to still love them and create them. And this is why he's grieving. This wrath isn't something he's just, he's just mad, he's wrathful and he's vengeful and he's just, no. This is breaking his heart of, because of the way that humanity is rebelled and how he's going to have to deal with it. Isaiah 49, 15, this is a verse that is talking about um, a nursing mother and talking about how, how, how she feels about her child and comparing it to, to God. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these, so even these mothers may forget, yet I will not forget you. It's appropriate today as these babies are up here, like he's saying, like as much as a woman who is nursing, a mom who is nursing, loves her child and, can't, and won't forget them. God's love and compassion is so much, much more greater than um, a nursing mother. I had a pastor friend of mine tell me once of this, uh, use this illustration for this passage of him and his 
son, and, it, and it, it's happened to us. I'm sure it's happened to many of you who are parents, but uh, we have one son, Jax. He's two and a half, and one of the, the really the worst experiences we've had with him was when he was about a year old, and I'm not going to get into the details because we don't have time, but an accident happened. We had to take him to the emergency room. His face was covered in blood. I couldn't even see where um, the injuries were. I was covered in blood, and I, uh, we were in the, the ER most of the day and the night, and not once in that time did I say, gosh, I regret having him. Or gosh, this would, my life would be so much easier if I didn't have my son. That didn't cross my mind one time. Even though as I was inconvenienced, I never thought, man, I, I should probably just go home because I'm kind of inconvenienced being up here. I've got other stuff to do. My, no, my son's potentially having to go into surgery and, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm broken, I'm busted, I'm, I'm, I'm grieving but that's not going to stop me from loving him. And we're probably going to do the ER thing again, as most of you parents know. And we want more kids. And we know what's going to happen, yet we are prepared to love them through that. And I am a sinful, selfish man. And God is a perfect, holy father. How much more does God grieve over his creation than I can over my son? Or you can over your children? doesn't even measure up to what God feels about his creation. Now, a legitimate question here is, then how just was it for God to wipe out everybody? How really just was it to wipe out the whole world other than just these eight people? And here's the deal. Along with being just and loving, God is also holy. He's perfectly holy. That's a part of his character, which means that he cannot allow sin to remain in his presence and let it go unpunished. That's a part of his character. We see that all through the scriptures. So when humanity's rebelling and he's patient, he's long-suffering, he's wanting them to come back, and finally he just says, I have to deal with this sin. That's what we see prior to the flood. So because God is holy, he is just in punishing sin because, because of his holiness, he cannot allow sin to remain in his presence. Or he would cease to be holy and then he would fail to be God, and he, does not, he is not deserving of our worship if he is not God. This is why his holiness, his justice, and his love all have to be held together as characteristics of the same God. He doesn't have most, multiple personalities. It's one God. He's got all of these things as a part of his character. If you're still unconvinced with that, think of this. This, this helps me. Imagine a judge in our day and age whose, whose primary role is to uphold the law and hear cases and make decisions and verdicts based off the, the law. So imagine a case, a uh, guy comes in, he is a murderer, and he's committed the worst, heinous crimes you can imagine, and the judge is hearing his case. There's eyewitness testimony, there's DNA evidence, you've got a personal confession, and all the other uh, uh, evidence you would need for this man to be guilty of all the horrible things he's done. But right when he's handing out the verdict, the judge says, you know what, I feel like it's really unloving to punish this guy. It's really unloving. So I'm going to let him go. Because I don't want to be unloving to him. That he would not be doing his job, he would be an unjust judge because he's not doing what he's called to do in upholding the law. Okay, and, and if, this, if this judge gets appointed again to a case that involves your family member, I'm guessing you're not going to trust him. You're not going to trust this judge to do the right thing because he's let this one thing pass. What if he does it again? 
And you could go on saying that he, 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 he thought he was being loving, but when we stand back and see the big picture of everything, he was actually being very unloving to all those who were victims of this man's crime. And so we, 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 we like say, no, that's, that's wrong. That's not a good judge. So we, do we apply the same situation to God when we are kind of asking him what kind of judge is he? Okay, this is a helpful illustration. I don't know if that helps you, but we do see God's justice in this story. We do see it. And he punishes sin. But here's the deal. We also see his love. And we can't miss this. This is what makes love shine even more. These eight people that he saved did not deserve it. The scriptures don't say Noah was any better than any of the other people around there. It says Noah found favor from God and then he walked with him. It didn't say he was walking so perfectly and he found favor. It says he found favor with God. God, for some reason, chose Noah to work through to, to cause humanity to continue after the flood. Noah didn't deserve it. You think when they're on the ark, they feel God's mercy and grace and love? Absolutely. So yes, God's justice was here in the flood, but also his love. Okay, now, that's the backdrop. Let's quickly look at verse, or chapter 9. And this is part 2, okay? <clears throat> so it says, Noah gets out of the boat. And then it says he made sacrifices to God. And God makes his promise. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. This is uh, chapter 8, actually, not chapter 9 yet. Um, For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. It's getting at the covenant here. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So Noah gets out of the ark and immediately... um, offers sacrifices of thanksgiving. He gets it. He, get, he, he understands what just happened. God saved him. First thing he does when he hits dry land, he worships. He celebrates. He understands God's grace in this moment. Let's go to chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's similar to Genesis um, 1 and 2, the command. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are to be delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you green plants and I give you everything. He, again, he's starting over, kind of going back to Genesis 1 and 2. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And for man, from this fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. This next verse is important. We'll come back to it. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. We'll come back to that. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. We've heard that before in Genesis, okay? Now, here's the covenant. And covenant, when we say covenant, those of you, that's, if that's a weird word, it's, it's the strongest kind of agreement that one can make. And it's the strongest kind of agreement because God is always a part of a covenant. God is always a part of a covenant. Let's look at verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. You notice that he's not just making the covenant with humans. He's actually making the covenant with all of creation. God cares about all of his creation. Okay? And we know in the new heavens and the new earth, God's going to make everything new. Not just humanity, but everything new. Okay? Animals, everything. Okay? Verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again 
shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. That's a promise. It's part of the covenant. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Okay, here's what's going on here, okay? We go back to verse six. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So because we're image bearers, God's saying, I'm going to set up a, I'm going to set up a way for sin to be punished moving forward. His sin's going to be punished moving forward because these are my image bearers and I care about them. And that weird language about blood there, all he's saying is that, that all of life belongs to God and God has chosen to see life through things that have the blood in them. Okay, so it is God who gives life. This is why um, when Noah came out of the ark, he actually sacrificed animals. And you can't sacrifice animals without there being a lot of blood. Okay, so what this means, it's not the animal itself, it's the actual blood in the animal that is part of the sacrifice, the most important part of the sacrifice. So we know reading further into the Old Testament, God is going to set up this system with the temple in the middle of it. And this is the way God's people are going to be forgiven of their sin. He sets up this, this consistent, consistent system where his people can come, shed the blood of animals, and be forgiven of their sin. Because remember, God is holy and just, and sin must be punished. So God sets it up as an act of grace for his people to give them a way for their sin to always be forgiven. Just by shedding the blood of an animal on the altar um, around the temple. Okay, so this is, once again, think through, start Again, if you're paying attention, you think about Jesus, okay? There's a lot of pointers. There's a lot of foreshadowing of Jesus. The blood, the perfect lamb, all of these things. And this is what the Old Testament is moving towards, okay? So the shedding of blood um, is for the forgiveness of sins, okay? So God is always going to provide a way out for his people and their sin moving forward. Another way to say what a covenant is, it's actually... God giving um, humanity a way out of their sin. He's providing a way for humans to be saved from their sin. Okay, and he's la he lays that out throughout the rest of the scriptures. Okay, let's go verse 12. That's where it gets really good. I love this section. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all the flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. Okay, so God sets this bow in the sky which we call that a rainbow, okay? That's, this is the first rainbow here. We get a rainbow here, okay? So it's setting, it's setting his bow in the sky. So he's already said that this is my covenant. He's told them what the covenant is. Now he gives them a sign, something that they can see consistently to remind them of the covenant he's made with them. And this word bow here, it's, this, this word is used 45 other times in the Old Testament. Every other time it's used in the context of war. This word actually means a war bow, something you would shoot arrows out of, okay? It's a war bow. So in a sense, he's saying, I'm, I'm, putting, my, I'm putting my war bow in the heavens. And this, this bow is to be a sign of my covenant, a sign of my love for my people. Okay, so what, what is with that? I think we should, that should be kind of an alert. What does this mean? This is kind of odd here for this rainbow to be coming up out of nowhere. Well, another way to say this is that he is ending things. 
When he puts his bow up there, he's hanging up his war bow. He's done with um, the fighting. He's done with the judgment. That goes along with the covenant. He will never again wipe out humanity with a flood. But here's the issue. With, from our study we've just done, he's a just God. And he even knows they're going to continue to sin. No, like, just right after he gets out of the boat, he, he, he sins. So this, he's not saying everyone's going to be perfect from now on and I can like relieve my judgment. He's going to have to find another way to judge sin if he's making this promise. If he's making the promise, I will never destroy the earth again. How is he going to judge sin? Well, the answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus, right? Jesus is the way out, okay? And the, the, the interesting thing, I'll let, I'll let uh, Charles Spurgeon, the old famous preacher, says this about the rainbow. And I think this is, this is the best part here. The rainbow, yet again, is a token that vengeance itself has become on our side. You see, it is, it is an unbroken bow. He did not snap it across his knee saying the, the, the war is over. He did not, um, it says it is still a bow. Vengeance is still there. Justice is still there. But which way is the rainbow pointed? The bow is a, it's a rainbow. The bow part, the part the arrow came out of, is shooting up. It's shooting up. And it's a sign, it's a foreshadowing of him basically turning the bow on himself, sending his son to die for our sins one day. This is God giving us a foreshadowing, giving us a taste of what he was about to do, or what he would do a long, long time ago. But also, he's, it's a sign for the people in that day to say, I'm not going to wipe out the earth again. But it's a sign for us as we read this that it could all start to, to fit together. That the only way that he could truly end the war and punish sin for all time is by turning the bow on himself, sending his son to die a horrific, painful, and awful death that we deserve. The wrath that we deserve for our sin, Jesus is going to take it. Or Jesus took it. In, in, this, in this situation, looking forward, Jesus would take it. We already know that Jesus took that for us. The punishment for all of the sins we've committed in the past and all the sins we commit in the future, Jesus took it. The ark, the sacrificial system to come, they all point to Jesus. The ark was the way Noah's family survived the flood. Jesus is the way we survive God's judgment, the coming judgment. Okay? Jesus is the way we um, are able to, to, to get out from under the penalty of sin. But here's the deal. It only comes by faith. We have to believe, we have to actually believe that Jesus is who he said he was, and the, and the Bible is true in all that it says about what Jesus did. We have to believe that in order to be saved. Just like they had to be able to, they had to trust God to get in the ark to save themselves. We have to put our faith and trust in Jesus' grace and God's grace and his offer in this promise. Do we trust God? Do we trust the promise of God here that he will not wipe us out if we have faith in Jesus? Do we trust this? And if you've experienced God's life-changing grace, this should lead you to worship. When you think of that rainbow and you think that that rainbow is pointed up directly to God's son and that's a sign for us, way back then it's a sign for us that this is what's coming and then actually we read our Bibles and we see that's what happened, that should build trust in God. Yes, he's a God of justice. Yes, he's a holy God. But 
absolutely he's a God of love. And this story shows that this isn't like just, uh, just lovey-dovey stuff. This isn't like Hallmark card kind of love or, hey, um, just, just uh, God loves you, so go be a good person. No, that's not what this love is. This is deep, deep stuff. When we say God is love, we should think about narratives like Noah. We should remember what God went through to give up his son on our behalf. And this should bring us to worship. And we're going to sing a song after communion. I want to read the chorus of it because I want us to get ready. And this chorus fits really well with this. It says, you dwell on high, you dwell in light, but still you've come for me. One perfect life laid down for mine, torn open for me. Who am I that you were mindful of me? I am overwhelmed that you were broken for me. Oh, my soul, soul, oh, my soul cries glory to the high and humble king, the high and humble king. You see, only us being rescued from, from God's wrath will produce the worship for God that we should have. If we don't know where we came from, there's no way we can worship him the way we should be able to worship him. And to close, I think one scripture that's really helpful for me to really help leaving here to give you something to hold on to, Romans 8, 32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So when you're lonely, when you're anxious, when you're hurting, when you're trapped in the middle of sin, in an addiction, whatever it is, you can feel like, how in the world, how am I gonna get out of this? I think this is the verse. If he did not spare his own son, if he turned the bow on his own son, how will he not also be here with me to get me through this? How will he not graciously give us all things, all things that we need for life and godliness and freedom and joy? How will he not give us these things? We can trust these promises for now and in the future because of something that's already happened. He's trustworthy because he turned the bow on his son. He sent his son on our behalf, therefore he's trustworthy. So when we read Romans 8, 32, we can say, yes, amen. God, help me feel this way. Help me overcome my anxiety. Help me overcome my loneliness. Help me overcome that thing I'm turning to for happiness and joy that never satisfies. Help me. And without this, we can't cry out to him. But because of the son, because of Jesus, we can cry out to him. We do have hope if we have faith in him. And if we believe in him, let's pray. God, I thank you for places in the scripture like Noah and the flood. It's a, it's a very popular narrative and most of us know parts of it at least. And I just pray as we've gone through that this morning that we would know and we would we would understand more about your character and your nature. That yes, you're a God of love, but there's so much more to your character um, that will allow us to understand more aspects of your love. Cause us to see your love in a different way. And that your love would, would penetrate deeper into our hearts if we understand all these other facets of who you are. So I pray that those of us who have faith, I pray that the next... 10 or 15 minutes would be celebration because of who you are and what you've done. And we would remember your goodness. That we would remember your son. It's in your son's name we pray for your glory and our good. Amen.